Let's have one more short prayer. Jesus, I ask you too to come. Inspire us with your Holy Spirit. Give us sharp minds, clear thinking, and speak to our hearts, we pray in your name. Amen. This morning we want to talk about how to survive a revival seminar. After all, we're on the last day, so we want you to survive. Uh, We've spent the last week talking about one thing, a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. I told you at the beginning there was going to be no bait and switch here. We were going to stick with the topic all the way through. We've suggested a core statement. You should know it. I was just going to put it on the screen and realize I don't have it there. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know. And who you know will transform what you do. Our Christian life revolves around that personal, intimate, daily relationship with Jesus. We've talked about the three-legged stool. Time in Scripture for the purpose of relationship knowing Him. Time in prayer for the purpose of two-way communication and sharing that is a natural bubbling over of a great relationship. The best fruit is always natural fruit. And Jesus said, if we abide, we will Bear good fruit. Amen? Now today, I want to start with a parable. You know what a parable is? It's a story that's not necessarily true, but it's designed to make a point. Mrs. Jones works in an office in New York City and has been working there for 13 years. Her co-worker one day asks, I notice your nameplate says Mrs. Jones. But in all the 13 years we've been working together, I've never seen Mr. Jones. Are you married? Are you widowed, estranged, divorced? Oh, Mrs. Jones says, I'm married. Mr. Jones is very much alive. Well, then how come I've never seen him picking you up or at staff events, social events? Well, that's because Mr. Jones lives and works in San Francisco. Really? You must buy a lot of plane tickets and have a lot of frequent flyer miles flying to see each other. No, we don't like to fly. We're afraid of flying. We don't, we don't take airplanes. Well, you must drive a lot to meet in Kansas City on the weekends. No, there's not enough time. Well, you must own stock in the phone company, burning up the phone lines. No, we don't like phones. They're a bother. Well... How long has this been going on, you in New York and Mr. Jones in San Francisco? Well, about 13 years. Well, that's how long you've been working here. Are you sure you're married? Yes, I'm sure. We stood up in a church. There was a preacher. He said, do you? We said, we do. Friends and family were there. We took vows. We signed the certificate. We had the reception. We cut the cake. Well, then, when is the last time you saw Mr. Jones? Well, that would be at the wedding. We left the church, we had the celebration, we cut the cake, I moved to New York because that's where my job was. He moved to San Francisco, that's where his job was. And you haven't seen your husband since the day you got married? No. And you think you're married? Yes, we had a wedding. We have a certificate to prove it. Now, a marriage certificate does not make a marriage any more than a baptismal certificate makes you a Christian. 
We have a great misunderstanding about baptism. The idea, we think the goal is to get people baptized. Morris Fenden once had a lady say she wanted to be rebaptized. He said, rebaptized. She said, yes, I've been baptized four times and none of the others took. Is a marriage certificate what a marriage is all about? Is the wedding ceremony what the marriage is all about? I have counseled a few people prior to their wedding and realized that they're in for trouble because their relationship isn't doing so hot, but it's all about the ceremony. Mrs. Jones and Mr. Jones may have a marriage certificate. They may have had a wedding, but and they may be technically legally married, but they don't really have a marriage living 3,000 miles apart. A good marriage is based on two people get to know each other, they hang out, they spend time, they talk, they share, they discover they love being together, they go places, they do things, and finally they say, let's make this permanent. We like doing life together. And they make a commitment, they get married, they sign the certificate, they have the party. But unless the communication and the doing life together continues, being in relationship actively daily continues, you don't have much of a marriage, right? Many think if I can just get baptized, have a certificate, then I'm a Christian. Baptism is to Christianity what a marriage license or a wedding is to a marriage. If you're not plugged into Jesus before the baptism, you just got wet. And if you don't stay plugged into Jesus after the baptism, you just got wet. It's all about the relationship before and after, not so much the event itself. People go to camp meeting. I know in Arizona we still have a full week-long camp meeting. Do you have a full week camp meeting here? Good. This is a good conference then. Uh, there aren't that many left conferences that have the full week camp meeting. We not only go to camp meeting in Arizona, which is the second and third weekend of June, but then we uh, have been leading out for the last 30 years in a camp meeting in Northern California, up near Eureka. It's a 1,000 miles that we have to drive from Glendale, Arizona to uh, Fortuna, California to go to this camp meeting, but it's great. It's another eight or ten days of spending time with people, with Jesus. It's a revival time. But if you go to camp meeting, and after you come home from camp meeting, life goes back to the way it was before, camp meeting really didn't do any good. If you come to a week of prayer or an evangelistic series or a revival series like this and you're blessed, but next week you go back to life as usual, it all eventually means nothing. The fire of spiritual life once started needs to continue to burn brightly and there's no reason for it to fade and there's no value if it does. Jesus said some of the seed fell on stoning places where they did not have much earth and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched and because they had no root, they withered away. You have to put down Roots, roots. Psalm 1, he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also will not wither and whatever he does will prosper. We need to put down roots, deep roots. I know in Arizona, the deeper the roots, the better. I have a tree in my front yard, which was a volunteer. It came up on its own, but it was the kind of tree I wanted, a mesquite, so I let it go. And it's now a beautiful tree that covers the entire front yard. And I've never had to water it because the roots went deep. Then I have four fruit trees. 
that I tried to wean off of water a couple of summers ago. The uh, drip system broke. I have a fig, lemon, tangelo, and pomegranate tree. And the uh, drip system went down in the middle of the summer, and I was too busy to bother. And I discovered those trees need water. Half the fig tree died. The tangelo had absolutely no fruit the next season. Funny thing, a year later I added water, and there they go. They're living again. If we don't put down roots where the water is. Now, there's one very interesting thing. I have a dwarf lemon tree, which is huge. And it happens to be the tree that is nearest to my fountain. I put a fountain in the back because, believe it or not, in Arizona there are tons of birds. And the best way to see them is a fountain. They just love that fountain, a three-tier fountain. But that fountain constantly splashes water outside of its bottom rim, the bottom bowl. And I've discovered now that when I look at that fountain, all around the bottom of that bowl on the outside, what looks like dirt, if you scratch just a little bit, it's a mass of roots. That lemon tree found the drips from the fountain, and it thrives even when the drip system is down. Why? Because its roots found the living source of water. Not the one that drips once in a while, but the one that's there all the time. We need water. We need to put down our roots. And if we put down roots, what will happen? Fruit will happen. What kind of fruit? Good fruit. Good fruit. I've been in a habit for the last about 13 years of trying to climb a mountain every year. We go in August. We go to the Sierras, the southern Sierras. There are a number of 14,000 plus peaks there. And I try to conquer one a year. I've been successful about half the time. But I get up there anyway. A couple of years ago, we couldn't get a permit to go in the normal trail because they were all sold out, so we just picked the next gully up and got a permit for that. And when we read about hiking in on George Creek, they said it was not for the faint of heart. And we discovered that very clearly. You see, the eastern side of the Sierras are in a rain shadow. The western side is well watered, but when the clouds come over the 12,000-foot ridges, they've lost their water, and the eastern side is desert. And you can stand up on top of Mount Whitney, 14.6, and you can look vertically about three to four miles out, and you're down almost two miles to the bottom of Owens Valley. It's twice as deep as the Grand Canyon. It's an, but it's desert. And the water that flows out of the mountains on the eastern side comes from the snowpack. And it flows down between narrow rock walls often, and you'd figure you could walk up the creek except it is so tangled with willows and bushes that you almost can't get through. Why? Because where the water flows, the plants grow. And yet, immediately to the side, up the rock wall and up there, there's nothing. It's desert. We need to put our roots down where the fresh water flows. When we meet and have a revival series like this, if we don't put roots down deeper and continue to nurture that root growing, in the end, nothing good will come out of it. Many attend religious services, are refreshed and comforted by the Word of God, but through neglect of meditation, watchfulness, and prayer, they lose the blessing and find themselves more destitute than before they received it. Often they feel that God has dealt hardly with them. 
They do not see that the fault is their own. By separating themselves from Jesus, they have shut away the light of his presence. It's very important that if any lasting good is to come out of all the time we've spent together, you must spend more time sitting at the feet of Jesus. Regular time sitting at the feet of Jesus. If that hasn't been your habit, it must become your habit. If it has been your habit, keep it up. Dig deeper. There is a problem with coming to a series like this and then going back to life as usual. Jesus said the unclean spirit goes out of a man, goes through dry places seeking rest, and finds none. He gets chased out of the nice moist mountain valleys into the desert and doesn't like it out there. And he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Now what happens when you come to a series like this, when you go to camp meeting, when you go to a week of prayer? You think about spiritual things and you do some inventory and you try to move forward with God. You kind of do some house cleaning. But if you don't keep staying close to Jesus, what happens? What you threw out wants to come back and it usually comes back worse. He goes and takes with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself and they enter and dwell there in the last state of that man is worse than the first. It's actually a dangerous thing to spend time in deep spiritual experience and then let it go. Because you never settle back to where you were. You always settle back a little lower. I remember 1979, my first year as an intern pastor in Newbury Park, California. One of the teachers there at the academy was a friend of a singer by the name of Little Richard. Now, Little Richard's an Adventist. Did you know that? Yeah. He's been one several times. Actually, his nephew is head deacon in my church right now. I understand he's still alive and living in Nashville. I don't know his spiritual condition. But I remember little Richard in this evening. He came in with a whole entourage. And uh, he talked to the kids there at the academy about his conversions, plural. Because he said he, he came to Jesus and it was wonderful, but then he missed hearing himself on the radio and he missed the applause, he missed the performing. So he slipped back into it. And then he came back to Jesus and then he slipped back and he did several of these oscillations. And he said every time he slipped back into his old life, he slipped into deeper levels of sin and degradation. It never was back to where he was, it was always lower. So I don't want to threaten you. But Jesus makes it very clear. You do some house cleaning and then you don't tend to it by filling that space with him and the Holy Spirit. Satan will move back in. And he doesn't come the same. It gets even worse. So let me ask you, which is easier? Buying a piano or learning to play one? Which is easier, buying a car or maintaining it? Which is easier, planting a garden or tending and weeding it? Which is easier, enlisting in the military or fighting a war? Which is easier, buying a puppy or raising the puppy? Which is easier, enrolling in a university or taking classes? Which is easier, getting married or staying married? <laughs> Anybody discover that? Which is easier, becoming a Christian or remaining a Christian? Which is easier, giving birth or raising the child? Now that's one I'm totally unqualified to answer. But my cousin Lee tells me that back in 1955 when he was born, 
That's when doctors wouldn't let husbands into the delivery room. But they let the mother and the mother-in-law of the pregnant mom into the room. And it seems that when Lee's mom, Marilyn was her name also, as is my wife, when Marilyn went into the delivery room um, and her mother and mother-in-law came in, the doctor was trying to console Marilyn. You know, there's going to be some pain, but the joy of the newborn will eclipse it all. At which point Marilyn's mother said, I still remember my pain. And the mother-in-law said to the doctor, have you ever had a baby? And the doctor knew he was in trouble. We'll let Jesus settle it. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being is born into the world. It's probably safe to say it's easier to give birth than raise the child. But the point I want to make here is that in all the things we just described, significant effort follows the initial investment. Significant effort follows the initial investment. Spiritually, we're told to fight the good fight of faith, and that's an ongoing thing. Be fighting the fight of faith. Be laying hold of eternal life. There is a fight to fight. There is a battle to win. There is effort in the Christian life. But where we have been asking is, where do we put the effort? Is the effort to try to overcome bad behavior, or is the effort to seek relationship with Jesus? Remember, very first night, we brought up the tree of knowledge of good and evil. At the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve did not commit a bad deed. They ate a perfectly good piece of fruit, neither of which is a sin in itself. So what was wrong? They, by eating that fruit, broke up with God, told God, we're breaking up with you and we're running off with a talking snake. We're going to go off with this guy. And they broke relationship with God. What was the immediate result? Fear, blame, shame, and before long murder. Right? So we introduce this entire series from the standpoint that the problem of sin is not bad behavior. The problem of sin the original sin, is broken relationship that leads to horrendous behavior. So what's the solution? Focus on renewed relationship, which will lead to renewed behavior. We focus on relationship, and God promises He can change our heart, and the only behavior that matters to Him is that which comes from the heart. All true obedience comes from the heart. So we've talked about focusing on Bible prayer and share for the purpose of knowing Jesus. There is a fight. There is a work. This is the work of God, Jesus says. Here's what God wants you to work on. That you trust, believe, have faith in him whom he has sent. I believe in a religion of works. But their relationship works, not behavior works. And some people say, well, it's just a different kind of work. Well, then you must not understand how to have a marriage. Because anybody who's been married longer than five minutes knows. It's not what you do, it's why you're doing it. And you can cook and clean and earn a living and fix the cars and do all these things so she won't leave you. And it'll never work. But if you do all those same things because of relationship, it works. You work on relationship and the behavior comes along. Amen? So that's been our focus. 
This is not do-nothing religion. This is where the real battle is. When you fight the battle where the battle is, you can actually win the war. And the battle is in the area of relationship, not in the area of behavior. Behavior is always the byproduct of the core relationship. Even in a marriage, how you treat each other is always the byproduct of your relationship. So it happened as they went that Jesus entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Now what was Martha distracted doing? Fixing lunch. How many people needed lunch? Jesus, 12 disciples, and three occupants of the house. That's 16 people. Ladies, how difficult is it to come up with lunch for 16 people? Now try it without a microwave and without a stove where you have to build a fire and without a refrigerator and without all the modern conveniences. Fixing lunch for 16 would be a big job. So I want you to notice, Martha was doing a good work. In fact, Martha was fixing lunch for Jesus. So she was doing the Lord's work. And where was Mary? Sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha is developing an attitude. She's in the kitchen. She's unhappy being there alone, so she begins to bang things, noise, pots and pans, opening and closing drawers loudly, uh, dropping things on purpose, mixing loudly. And there are sighs coming out of the kitchen, hoping Mary will get the hint. And finally the door swings open. And Martha is standing there, you know, she's got her arms crossed, she's got a spoon going like this and one foot is tapping. And she's saying, it must be nice. And finally, she said to Jesus, Lord, don't you care? Have you ever said that to God? Do you care? Look what's going on in my life, don't you care? Don't you care that you, my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Evidently, there's something more important than lunch. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Martha was doing the Lord's work, and yet Jesus said there's something even more important than doing the Lord's work, and that is sitting with Mary at Jesus' feet. I appreciate Martha's, or we wouldn't have potluck lunch today, amen? We need to eat. But one thing is even more important. Martha's need to charge their batteries first by sitting at the feet of Jesus. I'm a Martha. I'm not a Mary. I don't wake up in the morning wanting to sit at Jesus' feet. I wake up wanting to do this, that, and the other thing. And I have to deliberately choose every day to put Jesus first. The cause of Christ needs careful, energetic workers. There's a wide field for the Marthas, praise the Lord, with their zeal and active religious work, but let them first sit with Mary at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus makes the difference between having an occasional spiritual experience that soon fades away and having an ongoing, growing, productive, satisfying spiritual life. We need Marthas, but we must not let working for the Lord become a substitute for taking time with the Lord of the work. Amen?
The gospel according to Mary is interesting. Here we find Mary where? Sitting at Jesus' feet. Evidently, seven times she came to Jesus' feet to have demons cast out of her. We don't know those stories, but it says Jesus cast out seven demons. Later at Simon's feast, where do we find Mary? Martha's serving. Where do we find Mary? She's at Jesus' feet, anointing them with ointment and her tears. When Lazarus died, where do we find Mary? She falls at Jesus' feet. Now let's flesh this story out a little bit. Remember, Jesus was several days' walk away, down in the Jordan Valley. And they sent a messenger to him there saying, Your friend, not just some ordinary person you've never met, and you've healed a bunch of those, but your friend, Lazarus, you kind of owe him something. You've had lunch in our place. You've spent the night. We're special to you. Your friend Lazarus is sick. Please come and heal him. And Jesus answers what? This sickness is not unto death, which any logical person would interpret. He's not going to die. And so the servant goes back. He's not going to die. And then he died. And four days later, Jesus shows up. And Martha, frankly, is annoyed. I think it shows. Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. Kind of has a confrontational point. And she said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And I can just hear a little bit of annoyance in her voice. Where were you? We were counting on you. You've always come through. You come through for all those other people. Who are we? But then she also says... But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. She is in a kind of a schizophrenic position here. She's annoyed at the one she trusts. Why didn't you come through? And yet, we trust you. We know you're the Son of God. We know who you are, but why didn't you come through? Now, in Martha, I see this some what confrontational annoyance and submission. But what do we see in Mary? When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. That's Mary. Where's Mary at the cross? She's at the foot of the cross. She's standing there. Mary's the first to the tomb. She sees the empty tomb. Where's the body? She turns and thinks she sees a gardener and says, you know, If this tomb wasn't good enough for him, my brother vacated one. Just give me the body. I've got a place for it. And that gardener said, Mary. And it says she, well, it says Jesus says, don't cling to me. So she evidently latched on. And probably not around his shoulders, probably around his feet. Mary is always at the feet of Jesus. We need to sit daily at the feet of Jesus, if we want an experience that never fades. One thing is needful, Jesus said, and that is Mary's place at my feet. Between a momentary spiritual experience and a growing spiritual life is our decision. Are we going to sit daily at Jesus' feet? Interesting Bible verse in Hebrews. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter into rest. Have you ever tried hard to go to sleep? You know, one of the ones that I remember several times is when I went to climb the mountain in Southern California in August several times, we'd have to leave about 3 o'clock in the morning. 
because we have to drive eight hours to get to the mountains. We have to get there in time to pick up the permit and we have to hike in a certain distance on that day we have the permit or the permit becomes invalid. So I've got an eight-hour drive, get the permit, and I've got to hike a few hours. So got to get up at 3 a.m., pick up my hiking buddies, and we got to go. So Saturday night, I try to go to bed about 7 o'clock. And you know what happens. Wide awake till midnight. And it's annoying, and the harder you try to go to sleep, the less you're likely to go to sleep. But yet it says here to be diligent, be diligent. And that word diligent means be eager, make every effort, labor, work hard to enter into rest. And the word rest there means a complete rest. It's the word rest with a little uh, preposition added. Whenever you add a preposition in the Greek, it emphasizes it. Enter into total rest, complete rest. It's hard to work on resting. So now watch this verse. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. Now, in the English, that sounds like he's got this commodity called rest. You know, here's a little rest. Here, let me give this to you. Yeah, right. But I can't go to sleep. <laughs> you can give me all the rest you want. You know what it actually says in the original language? It says, I will rest you. Rest is a verb, not a noun. It doesn't say, I'll give you some rest. Here. It says, come to me and I will rest you. He says, I'll make it happen. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will find complete rest. It's that rest with the preposition again. You'll find complete rest for your souls. Let me ask you a question. If we're supposed to work hard at entering into rest, but if we come to Jesus, he will rest us, then what do we work on? We work on coming to Jesus, and the rest will happen. And you can take that either way. You work on coming to Jesus, and the rest, the rest, will happen. So once again, sitting at Jesus' feet, coming to Him, seeking that rest in Him. To survive a spiritual experience, we have to keep coming to Jesus morning by morning and make that our first and daily priority. Now I want to bring up one other dimension of how to survive a revival seminar. Though the Christian life is based on a personal relationship with Jesus, the Christian life is not a solitary pursuit. Did you get that? Some people would rather just stay home and watch through ABN. <laughs> Some people would, I find my church in the woods. There are songs about that, right? And I admit, when I get up into the high Sierras, up 13,000, 14,000 feet in the air up there, it's just incredible. It's just amazing. I don't think you have anything quite that high here in Michigan. Last time I checked, that's the one thing my mother hated about Michigan is there were no mountains because she grew up with Mount Rainier, 14,000 feet, out the dining room window. And then my dad brought her to Michigan where all there was flat and mosquitoes. But I have to say, our experience in Michigan this week has been phenomenal. We got here after spring had sprung and before the mosquitoes had hatched. And it's just about, I think, the perfect time. And most of the days were gorgeous. I've been told you had a lot of rain lately. Anyway, the Christian life is not a solitary pursuit. 
And that brings us to the subject of church. Church. That's an interesting word. Paul said that Jesus is the head of the body. And what is the body? The church. And then he said, you are the body of Christ and members individually. Now, some of you might rather just stay home and watch 3ABN or go out in the woods. But the bottom line is, Jesus says he is the head of a body. That body is made up of all those who trust and believe in him. So whether you like the church or not, get over it. If you're in Christ, you're in the church. All right? You don't have an option. And Christianity is not intended to be a solitary pursuit. The primary routing mechanism may be your time alone with Jesus, but we also are supposed to connect with one another. In fact, the word church itself, the way it gets translated into the English, completely loses the original meaning. Because the word church in the New Testament is the word ekklesia. Ek is where we get the word exit, out. And klesia is a noun or adjective form of the verb kaleo. So literally when it says the word church, it's talking about the called out ones. Which makes it rather interesting. Nowhere in the New Testament is a building ever called a church. It wouldn't make any sense. The building being called the called out ones. Doesn't make any sense. Nowhere in the New Testament is an event called church. I'm going to, down to the church building to have church a meeting. Church is the called out ones. That doesn't make any sense being the title of a meeting. I'm going out to have the called out. No, we're going to have church. So our word church completely loses the original meaning. Always and only the word church, ecclesia, refers to the people. We are the church. I mean, think of the schizophrenic way we use church. We're going to the church to have church with the church. Now, which is it? A building, an event, or the people? And according to the New Testament, it's always and only the people. It's the team you play on to move the ball towards the goal against the opposition. I like to think of it this way. In Arizona, we have a lot of rivers, but there isn't any water in the rivers. They're just river beds, and they're often deep gullies. And if you get down in one of those deep gullies, there can be a storm that you can't even see the clouds that can dump water and all of a sudden, you can find yourself faced with a wall of water in the middle of this wadi. Okay? So think about it. If you were in the middle of a deep gully with steep sides, and all of a sudden a wall of water waist deep hits you, and you know if you get swept downstream, there's a 100-foot falls and you're dead, what are you going to be doing? Frantically trying to keep your feet, right? What are the chances of you making it up that stream till you can climb out without being washed down? Really, really tiny. One slip and you're dead. But if I'm there with you and we lock arms and someone else is on the other side and you lock arms and someone's locked arms and lock, if we're all lined up locking arms, working our way up this current, if you lose your balance, if you lose your footing, we've got you. If your neighbor loses his footing, you've got him, right? We have a much better chance of surviving and getting out alive if we're locked together. And that's, I believe, what church is supposed to be. It's not some global nondescript entity. It's not a large meeting hall. It's not an event at 11 o'clock on Sabbath morning. It's people. It's people. In fact, the early church didn't even have buildings. If you're in Christ, you're in the church, right? 
because it's the people. The early church didn't even have buildings. Notice, Paul made havoc with the church. Where did he find the church? Entering every house. The church was in houses. And we see that. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and greet the church in their house. That's when they lived in Rome. Then when uh, the emperor threw all the Jews out of Rome, and uh, they moved to Corinth. And from uh, Ephesus, Paul wrote to Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla greet you with the church that is in their house. Greet Nympha and the church that is in her house. To Archippus and the church that is in your house. How big is a church group going to be if it has to fit in a house? And look at this verse. Paul says, not many upper class became Christians. Therefore, I would guess that most of the houses were small houses. Which means church in the New Testament wasn't 300 people in a place. You know, I have a church where our Sabbath morning attendance is about 300. One week I had, I was standing at the door after a second service and uh, somebody came out who had walked out of the building that's their first Sabbath there and they said, Pastor, this is the most friendly church I've ever been in. I just felt at home. Thank you so much. And I shook their hand and felt great, you know. It wasn't three minutes later, somebody came out, shook my hand and said, Pastor, this is the coldest church I've ever been in in my life. I will never be back. This is an awful place. Well, now, wait a minute. What happened? They both came to the same church and they both had the same church experience, but they had a very different interaction with the church. I don't know what happened. Sometimes it's our own fault. We're not friendly and then we think it's everybody else's fault. I wasn't going to blame them. But in a group of 300, it's pretty easy to get lost in the crowd. But if you're going to somebody's house for church, where there's only 12 or 20 people, it's pretty hard to get lost. The original church experience, I believe, in the New Testament was mostly in what today we'd call small groups. A dozen or so people meeting in a home. They didn't necessarily have a preacher to preach at them. They had to bring whatever experience they'd had with God all week. And that synergized together to become their church experience. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, it appears that the typical church experience in Corinth anyway was more informal, participatory, spontaneous, sharing, and unfortunately even chaotic. And Paul says at least keep things in order. But clearly church was a sharing of all rather than a bunch of people sitting in pews looking straight ahead listening to a talking hit. I would like to suggest that we've lost something. The original church was far more interactive. But we can recreate it, and I'd like to share something with you that I want to call better than church. So I want to introduce to you now all about Jesus' small groups. I think one of the best ways you can survive this revival seminar with the thriving, ongoing, growing experience is if you get involved in a small group. And small groups can be very complex or they can be very simple. I believe all about Jesus' small groups are very, very simple because they don't require any training to lead one. That's good news, isn't it? We're not going to have to have a seminar. In fact, we're going to take about 10 minutes and that'll be it. Number one, you gather a group of 6 to 12 people. You don't want it more than about 12. And you gather them by personal invitation. Don't ask the pastor to put an announcement in the bulletin. Just look around and say, who could I invite over to my house? What night have I got free? And invite some friends over. Number two, you need to meet weekly. Every other week seems to not be quite enough momentum. Weekly is the best. 
at any convenient day or time that works for you. Uh, any people mixed. It can be a group of singles, couples, families, retirees, teens. I think mixed is the best. I think just invite friends over whatever the age and uh, gender, etc. Meet wherever it's convenient. In your home, here at the church, in a room, at a cafe, a lunchroom at work, wherever. Make it a limited term engagement. You don't want to call up somebody and say, we're going to start a small group in my house that's going to go until Jesus comes. Would you like to join? People are going to say, I'm not ready for another marriage. You know, that's a little too much. But if you say, for the next 10 weeks, we're going to meet on, you know, Thursday evening at my house, and we're going to talk about how to become deeper involved with Jesus. Would you come and join us? People will say, okay, I could do 10 weeks. Let's give it a try. Make it a limited engagement. By the way, at the end of the term, stop the group, but don't quit. That's the time, you know, you'll say, okay, we're done. And people will say, well, this was good. We want to keep going. Okay, fine, but we're going to divide. I'm going to invite some more, and half of you can stay here. And who wants to lead and who will open their home? And you can invite some more, and we're going to divide. We're going to grow this thing. Otherwise, we get stagnant. We suggest about a 90-minute group meeting. Don't let it go on and on and on and on. And simply work the three legs of the stool in the group, like daily devotional on steroids. First of all, start with the sharing. As people come in, just let it be sharing time. You could even have a few refreshments if you want, but just let life stories share. Bubble over on what's been happening this week in your life, how Jesus has been leading, what's been going on. Get caught up. Let the group start kind of easy, just conversation. Be friends, but not more than about a half an hour of that. And then you have to call as a leader, you call the group together, and it's time for prayer. Now, we strongly suggest a time of conversational prayer. Some call it popcorn prayer. Um, have you ever been in a prayer setting where it's time for prayer, and so some person in the group prays first, and they pray, and they pray, and they pray, and they cover every possible topic and every possible need. And 20 minutes later, when they say amen, you wake up. And if you did listen to them pray, you're going, well, there's nothing left for me to pray about. Now, how would it work if that was a dinner conversation? One person talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and talks, and finally, at the end, they say, I'm done, next, which is what we do when we finally say amen. We're saying next. Anybody else want to say something? Have you ever been in a conversation that somebody tried to manage? <laughs> it can be downright annoying. You know, they talk and talk, and then, well, so why don't you say something? Well, now, how about you come in here? That's not how a conversation works, Right? A good conversation is somebody tells an experience and somebody, that kicks a memory over here and, and that kicks a memory over here and, and it's just going around the table. Nobody's managing it. It's just a great conversation. And nobody says, okay, I'm done. Who's next? It just kind of flows from one thought to the next. I believe that's the best way to pray as a group. You have something on your heart and you pray that item, one item. And when you're done, you don't even need to say amen. That's like saying next... The prayer's not over. 
It's a conversation, a group conversation with Jesus. And so when you're done, you just you finish what you say. There's a little silence and somebody else kicks in. What you said reminded them of something and they pray a specific need. In fact, one of the best ways to do it is say you pray about a specific concern. The next person prays about your concern, supports your prayer, and then brings in theirs. And somebody supports yours and brings in theirs. And it, you won't go to sleep. Nobody will pray more than 30 seconds at a time. And it'll be a lively conversation with God. Works much better. The other thing that happens in prayer meetings is first we take requests. Have you ever been in a prayer sitting where, setting where you took requests for 20 minutes and then there was three minutes left for prayer? So I strongly suggest you don't take prayer requests. You do prayed requests. We're going to spend some time in prayer now. Simply pray what's on your heart and we'll support each other in prayer. If you have a request, ask it of God and we'll support that in prayer. And let the request be prayed. I mean, where is God while you're taking prayer requests? Is he off stage in some soundproof room? So you can finally bring him in and present him with a request? So why not just pray him in the first place? Does that make sense? And you will find that a half an hour will go by just like that when you pray that way as a group. It's just a great round-the-table conversation with Jesus. And by the way, when you get into prayer, never go around the circle. Why? Somebody in that group may not be comfortable praying out loud in a group. And if you go around the circle, they are feeling the pressure as it gets closer and closer and closer. So you know know what I do? I do tell the people, we're not going to go around the circle. Just pray whenever you are inspired to pray. But if, it's go, if I pray, if I start it, and this person prays, and that person prays, do you know what I do? I pray again. Break the circle. Break that circle. Don't let it go around the circle. You want people to be comfortable. And a half hour in prayer will go by in a moment. You'll find as the group leader, it's not long. You're going to have to be watching or watching. You'll need to step in in the prayer and say, okay, Lord, um, it's been great conversing with you on these things. It's I ask you now to send your Holy Spirit as we open our Bibles. We're going to read a little bit about the life of Jesus. Would you come and inspire us, Holy Spirit? You're going to close that prayer off in about 30 minutes, even though it could go on for hours, by asking God to come now as you open the Word. And then the third part, last half an hour, about a half hour for each one, is what I call exploring. I avoided the word study. But you're going to open the Bible. Now, one thing I would suggest is the Bible only. No other books. In this case, I know there are other good books, but no other books. If people start bringing other books, you'll be off everywhere but in the Bible. Stay with the Bible alone. You only have half an hour, and that'll go by so fast. Gospels only. Stick with one of the Gospels and a short story within the Gospel. What the leader does is the leader pre-selects the passage and doesn't tell it a week ahead of time. You do not want to pre-announce it. Why? Because somebody will study the thing and come all ready to give their points. And the purpose of these small groups is to experience God showing up in the moment and the Holy Spirit making something happen. Because you see, your morning devotions are dependent on that, right? You open your Bible, you don't know what's going to happen, but you're counting on the Holy Spirit making something happen. Now try that in a group. It's exciting. 
what happens. Because everybody all of a sudden becomes equal. Nobody's studied up. Nobody has all these resources. Nobody has the last word. Everybody gets to kick in. You read a, So you, you, you do one short passage. As a leader, you know what it is, but you spring it on them right then. Okay, we're going to read this story. You have people read it maybe a verse at a time around the circle. Maybe read it a second time. Um, and then... You want to spend some time just thinking about it. In fact, remember we had the uh, acronym we talked about, SOAP, Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. You bring up a story. No pre-study, just pre-pray. Then as a group, you observe it together. Say, let's just take a few moments, and even if you want to close your eyes, just picture this story. Play it through in your mind, and then start sharing what you see. And somebody will share a perspective, and somebody will share another perspective you had never thought of, and you'll find very quickly this story gets filled out from imagination. And by the way, don't be scared to death of imagination. Oh, how much we lose by not educating the imagination to dwell on divine things. Imagination is a God-given gift that can be used on the wrong things, which means it can be used on the right things. I want to give you the context of that statement. You need to dwell upon the assurances of God's word to hold them before the mind's eye. Point by point, day by day, repeat the lessons they're given over and over until you learn the bearing and import of them. We see a little today and by meditation and prayer more tomorrow. And thus, little by little, we take in the gracious promises until we can almost comprehend their full significance. Notice, she says almost. That we'll never get to the end of any Bible passage because the Spirit can always bring something new. Oh, how much we lose by not educating the imagination to dwell upon divine things rather than upon the earthly. We may give fullest scope to the imagination. Let it go. Fresh wonders will be revealed to the mind the more closely we apply it to divine things. The more we contemplate on heavenly things, the more new delights we shall see and the more will our hearts be brimful of thanks to our beneficent Creator. So you read a passage, and then as a group, you let your imaginations run and fill in the pieces of the story through conversation. And you'll see things in that story that others didn't, and they'll see things that will enrich yours. And all of a sudden, your time will fly by as you just talk about this event in the life of Christ. By the way, notice I put three words in yellow. Meditation, imagination, and contemplate or contemplation. One last time I want to say, please do not be afraid of meditation and contemplation. There are people in our church who are out there trying to scare you to death that somehow meditation is a bad thing. There is wrong meditation. There is inappropriate contemplation. But not when you're focusing your meditation and your contemplation upon the Word of God. The false system is to meditate and focus more and more on less and less until you're totally concentrating on nothing. And when there's a vacancy, Satan will move in. But we're not talking about mind-emptying meditation. We're talking about mind-filling meditation. The Bible is full of the concept of meditation and contemplation on the Word of God. All right, that's a bailiwick that I have. So you read the Scripture together. You observe it together, and then as a leader, you're going to say, now, okay, we filled out the story. What do you see in this story that God has applied to your life specifically today? What lesson is being brought through to you by the Holy Spirit? And once again, people will start kicking in what God has said to them. And you get these applications coming out. And then finally, you 
close with a prayer where you maybe pray through some of these applications very briefly and ask the Lord to apply them in the coming days and weeks. It's a very simple concept of a small group which requires absolutely no training, no pre-planning or study. It's simply getting a group of people together, opening the Word of God and asking the Holy Spirit to come and make something happen and letting it happen. And all it takes is one of you to look around and say, you know, I could open my house on Thursday evening. Uh, I'm going to invite so-and-so, make a list, you know, just look around, do it, put it in your phone or whatever, you know, make a list. And, and tomorrow or the, later today, you get on the phone and say, hey, I want to start an All About Jesus small group at my house. Would you, would you come? We're going to meet on Thursday night for the next uh, 10 weeks. I blocked it out on my calendar. Do you think you could make it? Come on over. And uh, it's not hard at all. And it can be an incredible experience. You see, no training is needed. Just open up your heart and your home and invite some friends over. A Midwest Adventist church that was near a large Adventist hospital, the pastor brought up this concept and suggested starting some small groups. And a few groups began to start about 12 weeks in length. And, you know, one group ended and they divided in another one. And, and there was a guy coming to one of these groups. His name was Mel, and his job was he was a sewer pumper. He had a sewer pumper truck, you know. Not the most glamorous job around. But that's what he did, clean porta-potties and septic tanks. And he was having such a wonderful time at the small group that then he had one at his house, and then he ended up leading one at his house. And when they get together on Sabbath morning in the lobby of the church, the people were bubbling over with all the good things that were happening. And the CEO of the local hospital heard all this. And he went to Mel, the sewer pumper guy, and he asked him if he would come and lead an All About Jesus small group for the vice presidents and senior administrators at the hospital. And Mel went to the pastor and said, I can't do that. They all have master's degrees and doctorates. They wear suits and ties. I wear jeans and t-shirts and Levi jackets. They sit in committees and I pump septic tanks. And the pastor said, if the Holy Spirit's in it, go for it. So 6 a.m., the first morning, 5.30, he's calling the pastor from the parking lot of the hospital. He's terrified. They pray together. He goes in later that day. He calls, and the pastor has to hold his phone out here. He's so excited. They had a wonderful time. They went through a series of a number of weeks together, and the CEO later said that that experience changed the atmosphere all around the hospital. No training needed. It bridges the education, culture, experience, and Bible knowledge gap. Everyone is equal. Everyone opens the Word, and the Holy Spirit speaks to and through everyone. It's like daily devotions on steroids. And I think it's better than church because you're actually making friends. You're interacting. It's more like the early church did things. By the way, it's a safe place to bring new people who would never want to walk into the church. And you know, we've all been to some churches we'd actually be afraid to invite somebody to for fear of how they would be treated, unfortunately. A safe place is a small group. And also, it's a great place to model how to spend time with Jesus. There may be some people who've never known how to spend time with Jesus, and they'll see how in this group setting they can do on their own. And those who are doing it can go deeper. So I, I really want to challenge you to consider, as individuals, not a church program, 
Well, don't burden your pastor with this. He's got enough to do. Just ask God, should I start a small group to help follow up this revival seminar? What night should I meet? What morning? What day? What time? What works on my schedule? Go to your schedule. Work it out. 8, 10, 12 weeks. Make sure it's clear. And then start inviting friends. We're going to meet in my house. And remember, you don't have to pre-plan. You don't have to have a Bible study ready to give. Just pick a passage and pray for the people you've invited. And remember those few simple little concepts of first half hour, let it be conversation. Second half hour, prayer, conversationally. Third half hour, read the passage. Soap, scripture, observe, apply, and set it with prayer. It's really quite simple. And yet I want to suggest even then it will take perseverance. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. I've discovered that even trying to have an all about Jesus small group, the leader especially has to persevere. You have to call people. In fact, it's best to call your people during the week. You know, you meet once and you have six or eight people there. Call them during the coming week. How's life going? Pray with them. Remind them of the upcoming group. Be friends. You have to nurture this thing. You have to persevere. You have to persist. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Nothing happens without perseverance and persistence. And Paul says all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade, but we do it for an eternal prize. It will take some discipline. If you're going to lead all about Jesus' small group, it will not be a discipline of study. It will be a discipline of people. Inviting, phoning, encouraging. And setting a scene for an interaction. Because it's all about Jesus. It's not about you as a group leader. It's about Jesus. And if all the people get out of that group is that having a relationship with Jesus is where it's at, you've succeeded. My cousin Lee was teaching at Campion Academy in, uh, in Colorado. And after Christmas break, the new semester was beginning. And he was in his office, but he could hear the kids gathering in the classroom. And there were some kids in the classroom who had been through his class before, and there were some kids that were new. And Lee was sitting and listening to their conversation, and the old-timers were saying to the new kids, you know, this class is really easy. In fact, no matter what question he asks, if you don't even know what the answer is, but you just write something about the necessity and privilege of having a personal friendship with Jesus, he'll always give you full credit. And Lee said at first he was miffed. And then as he thought about it, he said, praise Jesus, they got it. They got it. If all they get out of this class is the necessity and privilege of having a personal friendship with Jesus, they got it. They got it. And if all they get out of your small group is the necessity and privilege of having a personal friendship with Jesus, you have succeeded. That's it. That's it. It's all about knowing him. Indeed, I count all things as lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain what? Christ. Christ. It, that's all it is. If you gain Christ, you gain absolutely everything.
and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, behavior, but that which is through faith, trust in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him. I want to urge you to consider all about Jesus' small groups and whether or not you would like to be part of one. I want to urge you not to try to get your pastor to have to organize these. I want to urge you to do it on your own. I need two people. Please, sir. If you'll come, Marilyn, will you do the other honor here? I asked the pastor if he wanted me to hand these out. He said yes. So here's a little sheet that you can fill out and, uh, and hand in to the offering. I just told you not to bother your pastor, but you're going to bother your pastor. Um, it gives you a chance to at least express that you're interested in small groups. If you want one of these, raise your hand. That's how many the pastor made. So uh, take one per couple or whatever, and uh, we'll spread those out. You can fill those out on your own and turn them in, but you can ignore this sheet completely and just start your own group too. But this gives you a chance to say, hey, I'm interested, and uh, possibly some way that you can sync together. In fact, you know what I'd suggest? I'd suggest that one of the elders, whoever you are in this church, take charge of this list and don't bother the pastor with it, and you manage it. Get the word out of who's interested and who's willing. I'd encourage one of the elders to just handle that because that's all it takes. So we're not going to collect these, fill them in. Uh, I want to recommend to you all about Jesus Small Groups as a really good way to survive a revival seminar. We need time alone with Jesus. That is the root basis of your walk with him. If you don't have that, you ain't got nothing, okay? But beyond that, church is not a solitary experience. We need each other. And I'd like to suggest that your second layer should be your small group. Then when you come together for church on Sabbath morning, that's the third layer. That will be a whole new kind of experience because you'll be bubbling over from your personal and your small group time with Jesus. And you'll find Sabbath morning church is a whole new event. And with that, let's pray. Jesus, we want to survive. We want to thrive. We want to grow. And I pray for each person here today, for myself as well, that we will never let spending time with you in the morning slip away through busyness or anything else. May we persevere at our personal time with you. Then I want to pray for this church that you will raise up out of this audience right here today some people that you convict to start a small group so that this congregation can grow together spiritually in a small group setting such that when Sabbath morning comes, Sabbath morning church is a whole new experience because of the vitality of what's going on alone and in small groups during the week. Lord, I believe this is a way you can set this church on fire for you. And I ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.